You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Assistant Professor Dhani Hanjaya Putra. He's in the Department of Aerospace and Mechanical Engineering uh, at Notre Dame. Also, Assistant Professor concurrently uh, in the Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering Department, College of Engineering. We're going to be talking about uh, stem cell therapies. So, uh, Dhani, thank you for coming. Well, thanks for having me in this program. Yeah, so tell me about the work that you're doing on stem cells. What does it involve? So, yeah, so we in the lab um, lab is interested to utilize engineering principle to control stem cell uh, differentiation and try to use it for, particularly to to use it for digital generation and tissue engineering. Um, So we, our our lab is at the interface between engineering medicine. So we like to use this as a way so we can control the differentiation in a way we can model and treat different diseases. Okay, so any specific diseases that you're focused in on? Uh, what what kind of modeling are you doing? Yeah, so we we are particularly interested in um, diseases that associate the the cardiovascular lymphatic system. So anything that uh, has a blood vessel and lymphatic vessel, those are particular throughout your body. Um, so the cardiovascular system is the one that is regulate your blood. And the lymphatic system is the one that drains all your fluid back to the heart. So uh, those are important to maintain um, tissue hemostasis as well as different nutrients inside your body. So any defect, any disorder in that system will cause different diseases. Uh, could lead to uh, peripheral cardiovascular diseases like uh, limb ischemia or lymphatic uh, disorder could lead into lymphedema, so swelling of the limb. How, how does this, uh, okay, so lymphedema, ischemia, is that what you're trying to model the action of stem cells in those conditions, or I don't understand? Yeah, so so um, I'll give you an example here. So uh, stem cell is a, great, um, it's a cell inside our body, and particularly in the circulating blood, we know that this cell can give rise to uh, the blood stem cell as well as the vascular stem cell. Um, as you uh, we as an adult, we have this stem cell population that can give rise uh, to regenerate. And if you have a, a vessel defect, it's this stem cell can repair through it. But if you if you have a chronic disease, such as cardiovascular disease or diabetic or aging, this number of stem cells is uh, becoming lower as we age. The number of these stem cells becoming lower. And as well as the ability for them to regenerate, also 
lower. So they have a defective in the stem cell. So what we're trying to do in the lab is can we use engineering principle to kind of rejuvenate or kind of uh, revigorate the cells so they can become like normal, like healthy cells so they can uh, in fact become degenerate tissue again. Do you, okay, so what, what everyone experiences over time, the number of stem cells they have in a given mm -hmm. tissue decreases, but mm -hmm. what about the efficacy of the remaining stem cells? Is, does that also go down? And how can we measure that if so? Yeah, those are also goes down. So uh, give you an example, like if you expose the stem cell to high sugar content using a, a patient with type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, because there's a lot of uh, high sh high blood sugar uh, sugar in the blood, so it, ca it causes a defective in this, this stem cell. So there's an epigenetic regulation that causes this cell to be defective. And the number is down as well as the efficacy of this, uh, this cell is down. Using epigenetic changes, yeah. you believe are what leads to uh, the reduction of stem cell populations or the, the reduction of efficacy of stem cells? Right. So we, we have some, some preliminary data that show that there's some epigenetic changes that cause this defect, um, uh, which is uh, which could also be uh, what we're looking for in the lab now is that can we use a small agent such as either a small molecule or uh, therapeutic drugs that can be used to to kind of interfere with this epigenetic changes so that we can correct this cell back to a normal condition. So, okay, if epigenetics are the mechanism that you think that changes the stem cells, why mm -hmm. not look for a uh, a solution that or the reasons for the epigenetic changes and maybe how to reverse them instead of a small molecule drug. Why look for a drug to interfere or change the function of something? I mean, well, a small molecule is nice because you could take this drug as you could give this to a patient and they can take this orally, right? And if, if this small molecule can have a downstream signaling that can uh, inhibit certain pathway, then it could correct those epigenetic defects as well. So. But if we don't understand the full uh, method by which the epigenetic changes happen and what the changes are, it might mm -hmm. be hard to to create a drug that would uh, reverse that. I mean, say for instance, has anyone looked at, let's say, uh, a particular type of stem cell that has a very short lifespan and yeah. tracked the epigenetic changes that happen, and the expression changes that happen within that mm -hmm. stem cell? So if we take two types of tissue and one has very short-lived stem cells, and one has very long-lived ones, and we compared those two situations, for instance, to see the difference in efficacy of the stem cells over time in those two kinds of tissues. Has that been done? Yeah, so uh, that's been uh, done, the comparison either how how this healthy and disease uh, cell population differences in terms of the epigenetic, either uh, that one is a metab metabolism, how they, uh, they metabolize different uh, nutrients, so those are done, and we we know in the lab is we could uh, use a small molecule that interfere with some sort of those cascades to kind of correct the cell back to normal phenotypes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what um at what point would you want to work with someone when they have a disease or just as young as possible? Um, you know, yeah. I know there's some companies that are trying to harvest yeah. stem cells from a person. When they're younger, like what's your yeah. method by which you want to uh, help people? So that's that's a great question, right? Because now 
court blood banking is becoming a pretty common uh, procedure in in the developing world. Right? So, um, what if you could bank this court blood in a way that we could store this court blood stem cell? That eventually you could use this for if if your uh, baby become a dog at some at some point during uh, the development there some diseases, can you use the stem cell for those? Diseases as well as for other relatives, right? So I think the earlier the pos- the earlier the better, so that you could um, use it uh, early interfering um, uh, to to restore this. Uh, also, we we work with this um, cord blood now that we know that you could not only use this stem cell as to regenerate, but you could also use it to predict future health outcome, right? So for instance. Um, if we restore this corporate stem cell and you have a healthy baby that was born from a mother who is not is an uncomplicated pregnancy compared to a mother who has a complicated pregnancy, either those are through gestational diabetic or preeclampsia. So those cord blood are different, right? So the healthy the the baby, the infant was born from a healthy mom typically have a normal stem cell. But the, the baby, the infant that was born from mom who has preeclampsia or gestational diabetic, those stem cells are different. Uh, we, we know a lot about how this uh, complicated pregnancy affects the mother, but we do not know a lot about how this complicated pregnancy affects the, the infant, the offspring, right? So if you could use this uh, kind of stem cell to predict how this baby will grow up, um, whether uh, whether this because of exposure to early hit early on during their um, pre- uh, when when the baby it caused this um, infant to have a developed higher risk for cardiovascular disease or metabolic syndrome later on those are unknown right so so can you use the stem cell to predict that as well those I think those are pretty exciting new field so what kind of models are you studying stem cells in are you able to study them somehow in culture, you know, human stem cells, or do you have to use uh, rat stem cells? Like, what's your lab model? So we, we like to use a human patient, a patient-derived uh, cell. So we, we work, we collaborate with, uh, with pediatricians, uh, pediatric down here in India's School of Medicine. So they, they have, they ask for this core blood stem cell from a newborn baby, and we take those t- tissue sample, and we culture them in the lab. And compare if what from a normal pregnancy and compare this to complicated pregnancy that could be from either diabetic, gestational diabetic, or either preeclampsia, and address the differences in the function of this two stem cell. Now, this stem cell also secrete this uh, small exosome. Um, exosome is a small fascicle, so this cell uh, secreting this fascicle is a small particle inside the cell. Now, uh, inside this particle, it contains a lot of different um, information. So it could be either small RNA or protein, right? So um, this is something that interesting, becoming more interesting in, in the field because now you can compare this expression of different exosomes and see if you could predict a difference uh, as a biomarker to see if uh, there are difference in these two populations. So the, all right, so stem cells in particular, well, not not just them, but all cells, I'm sure. But stem cells, Correct. you've looked and you've seen they they produce exosomes, yeah. little fluid-filled vesicles. Have you um, yeah. 
been able to get an exosome and characterize exactly what's inside of it? Do they yes. so, tend to uh, customize and custom package exosomes at different times that have different things in them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so this, um, I think this is a hot topic recently because um, it seemed like this is a small particle that was secreted by the cell. The hard part about that is um, there's a lot of different protocol in a way to isolate this exosome and analyze them because you could imagine that this is a small particle so you have either to centrifuge it at a high, concentra- uh, high speed to kind of concentrate this kind of particle and then or use a different chemical gradient to kind of isolate them uh, typically. So, um, so once you have those, you could do a different analysis. So you could do typically a proteomic to figure out what kind of protein are there. If you're interested in RNA, microRNA, we typically do RNA sequencing to figure out what in microRNA inside there. I mean, microRNA is is a pretty uh, pretty interesting to look into because not only that this uh, secreted micro, uh, exosome that contain microRNA, and they have they use this for cell cell communication. So they in a way that it is secreting this microRNA and this microRNA inside this exosome can go to the next cell to kind of regulate the next cell as a way for them to communicate. So if we know that if a disease uh, a disease cell or stem cell that are exposed to this uh, uh, chronic disease is secreting this microRNA, perhaps this microRNA can and tell us something about why um, and we can use this as a biomarker in the future. So. Hmm. What is the size of an exosome on average, and what is the size of a human cell on average? Yeah, so uh, so the exosome in the field, we call it extravascular fascicles. So it, there's a big range of this size, right? So uh, ranging from 100, 200 nanometer. Uh, but what we call exosome is something that's smaller than that. So it's around, uh, typically around uh, 10 to 50 nanometer of this uh, small exosome. Uh, and the okay. cell, uh, the cell is typically in the micron size. So there's a small. This is a small particle that it is by the cell. Right. Okay. So and I guess you know cells mm-hmm. put out exosomes, but they also take them in. And maybe this yeah. is the method of cell-to-cell communication, right? Or one of the methods. Correct. Correct. So there's a lot of literature out there on cancer. Cancer cells secrete this exosome in a way for them to to uh, communicate to other cells and to a way to spread um, um, their their message to other cells. And now we're starting to learn that stem cells do the same thing, that they secrete also exosome. And inside this exosome, there's a microRNA that regulates other cells. So in a way, can we detect this microRNA and do a rapid screening to see if we can use it as a biomarker? Hmm. And I guess profiling how the exosome expression or the exosomes change over time would give you a lot of clues yeah. maybe as to what's going on. Exactly. It's so complicated and interesting, but it's amazing, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it is a really is a hot topic and a lot of people are working on on this field. So it's it's an exciting time. Well, so what are some of the new discoveries or surprising things that you've learned about stem cells yeah. in your lab? Yeah, so I guess uh, going back to um, to the first topic that we talked about earlier, that what if you have this corporate stem cell uh, derived from either a normal patient or patient or mother who has uh, chronic disease, in our case, it's uh, diabetic. So 
So what we we found is that if you have if you were born from mom who is a diabetic, uh, your core blood stem cell has lower ability to proliferate, and they have a defective their ability to form this vessel network. So um, we found that there's um, there's a particular protein that is highly expressed in this cell, and typically this expression of this protein is not as high in the normal stem cell. So because of this high expression particular protein, um, they are not able to proliferate as well, and they're not able to migrate as well. Consequently, because of those, they cannot form blood vessels as well, right? So uh, the strategy that we have in the lab is can we use more molecules to kind of correct us? So um, because we know the pathway, the signaling pathway, we could use a small molecule inhibitor to kind of inhibit this protein expression of this protein. By downregulating this protein, we could uh, effectively use uh, reduce this protein level, and and consequently we could kind of recover their phenotypes, so they become like a normal cell, right? We mean now, they become mm-hmm. a normal cell. Yeah, so they can. We can rescue their stemness. They can rescue their phenotypes. I mean, anytime they're going to repair, mm-hmm. or they, you know, anytime they they do their job, essentially they give up their old job of being a stem cell, and now they they finish their differentiation to the specific tissue that they're they, that needs repair, right? Um, correct. So the so we're talking about progenitor stem cell. They still are able to give rise to a daughter cell, right? And typically, these daughter cells have less ability, for, uh, have less proliferation ability. Um, but what we know, though, even the stem cell uh, from the uh, the disease stem cell, the ability for them to proliferate is less compared to a normal one. So if you could rescue rejuvenate the cell, then they can still proliferate as well as the uh, normal normal stem cell. Does it make sense? Okay. Yeah. So um, you're referring to the dead daughter cell. When, once they proliferate, the daughter cell has less ability to proliferate. But it's still their their stemness is uh, compared to normal. There's less, right? So, and if we can find a way for for us to kind of rejuvenate the cell, then we could uh, we could still use this this is a stem cell. And it can rejuvenate those uh, progenitor properties, so they can regenerate the tissue. Well, what about looking at the different populations of stem cells? You know, I've heard in some organs mm-hmm. and tissues, the stem cells very mm-hmm. rarely divide, and in some they divide constantly, mm-hmm. like hair, nails. Mm-hmm. You know, so, have you got so, yeah. that kind of stuff? So yeah, so you're talking more about uh, tissue-specific stem cells. So those are. Uh, when we are born, um, the stem cell lose the ability to to become pluripotent, to be, to regenerate to other cell type. But as an adult, we maintain this small amount of tissue specific stem cell that can regenerate, right? And you mentioned about the gut and the nail and the hair and the and the skin. Those are they still um, maintain some tissue specific resident cell stem cells that they are quiescent. In a way, they acquire them, and but when there's a signal from the outside, the signal will secrete uh, different uh, different cytokines so that the cell will be able to now mobilize and proliferate and generate new daughter cell, and those daughter cell can repopulate 
degenerated tissue, right? So those uh, were rare. Um, you mentioned about the the one in the skin, the one in the in the gut. So those are uh, very rare. We uh, also know the one there's there's in bone marrow. Those are blood stem cell, and and what we are working is also the one in the circulating blood. And so we found the core blood as well in the peripheral blood. There is a small population of cells that can also give rise to endothelial cells. So those um, those are the cells that we're working with in the lab. So are you working with cord blood cells or are you working with adult stem cells? Um, we're working with cord blood cells. Okay, so these are still pluripotent cells. They're not. They haven't no, differentiated no, no, no. at all. No, the cord blood is already an adult, right? Because once they're born, so those are adult cells. So this is not pluripotent. This cell, this is a progenitor cell. So this cell can only give rise to the blood cell and the endothelial cell. Oh, okay, okay, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they are different. So you're studying the, the stem cells in blood and the stem cells in the endothelium. Correct, correct, yeah. Okay, so what have you found that's uh, unique or, or interesting about them so far? Your studies. Yeah, what what we found exciting is that we could you could rejuvenate this cell using a different molecule, right? But now this molecule, if you want to use it for cell therapy, then in a way you could have to inject this cell, and then at the same time you have to give this small molecule inside the circulation, so in a way give the drug. So, uh, so so you have to just to concurrent therapy, the cell and then the molecule. So what we thought recently is that rather than doing this co-therapy, can we uh, put this small molecule inside on the surface of the cell? So I think the analogy that I like to give is that in this field, we start talking about putting nanoparticle into the surface of the cell. So putting like a backpack into the cell. So uh, we we send our the analogy that we like to give is that we send soldier to the, the battlefield and they're carrying backpack right inside so his backpack there's a walkie-talkie or their medicine right when I mean, the soldier is smart they know where to go um, but we give them some equipment so that they can survive in this battlefield similarly this cell this stem cell they know where to go inside your body when you inject them so but uh, from this disease phenotype, we need to rejuvenate them. We need to give them some sort of bioactive molecule. So what we put is we put a backpack into this cell. Inside this backpack, you see there's a small molecule and there's a drugs. So that when the cell needs it, this nanoparticle can release this, this molecule that can be used by the cell at the site of injury. Well, they do that. That's what they do naturally, you're saying? Or that's what you want to do no, with no. the addition of uh, other types of... Drugs. No, they they don't. I mean, we we do this ex vivo, so we take the cell out and then we modify it in the lab and we inject this back in vivo. So you're saying you're using the ability of stem cells to very precisely target certain areas of a damaged tissue, and then mm-hmm. for them to be the carriers of small molecule drugs that get released. But this would prevent Correct. a systemic release. It would make a very targeted release of a given given drug. Correct. That's pretty smart. I like that. Yeah, so we we kind of use their their. I mean, they they we inject the cell, they already know where to go. So in a way, it can be used. It we hijack the cell, or we put a backpack inside the cell, so that we could uh, give a small molecule drug to to where they go. So that's really interesting. Have you um 
have you tried this yet? Have you taken drugs that um, are currently in use that are known to have an effect and, you know, giving them to your carrier pigeon stem cells to take to the tissue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, we're not the first one who did it. This day. I think this idea has been there in the field. Um, I think people have been working with hematopoietic stem cell, and I think there's a group in MIT who did this and is a pioneer on working on this. Uh, and his group has been showing that you could take hematopoietic stem cell, and there's a stem cell transplantation. And in addition to this transplantation, typically patients are taking any adjuvant drugs, right? So drug that has to be taken in in concurrently with this stem cell transplantation. So the, the idea is, can you can you deliver this drug together with this stem cell? So um, so those are done in hematopoietic stem cell, and we're currently looking exploring the same idea and looking at core blood stem cell. So can we use this stem cell that can give rise to a new vessel? In a way that if you inject the cell, they can go to the site of injury and repair the, the damage in the telium. So can we also put some sort of uh, drugs so that it can also go to the site of injury with this carrier, drug carrier. So we've done this in vitro assay and we show that it, it can work in vitro. Uh, we're now currently looking into different in vivo models so we can show that it's a bit effective in vivo. When you package a... Um a small molecule drug with a stem cell, it goes to the right place, mm-hmm. but how do you mm-hmm. time it so that it releases its payload at the right time? How do you signal yeah. that? Yeah, so so that's that's a great question, right? So that's that's part of the engineering design, right? So now you start just talking about how do you design this nanoparticle so that in a way you could release this small molecule at the right time. So there's multiple ways you could do it. Uh, we could typically we could use this nanoparticle is a uh, we, we like to use a, a lipid nanoparticle, so it has a, a phospholipid, so it has a hydrophilic and hydrophobic tail, and under certain conditions, they start forming this micelle that form self-assemble into nanoparticle, right? So so if you could uh, engineer or, or somehow um, use a different design or how big is this tail of this nanoparticle, if you could add regulation of this and the particle, if you add different uh, chemical head group, that can affect the thermodynamic of this nanoparticle and in a way also affect how the drug being released from the nanoparticle. Well, this made me wonder, um, mm-hmm. whenever we take a drug, mm-hmm. I get, I, I don't even, it's not really talked about, but I would think the body sees it as a foreign substance, so it would mount an immune response, it would mount an inflammatory response. Is that yeah. the case? And and if so, what do you do to stop the stem cell from being attacked itself? Yeah, well, I think there's when you talk with with taking drugs, there's multiple different drugs, right? So and there's I think the simplest one is small molecule drugs. This is could be aspirin or either uh, different uh, agent. So those compound is small enough that can be effective at the side of the binding site of different uh, on the cell. But it doesn't really affect your immune response. So those, uh, the small molecules typically have very low immune response. So this is why probably pharmaceutical company like to work with small molecule. Not only is easy to synthesize, but also pretty low immune response. Now, when we start talking about biologics, so those are involved any protein drugs as well as antibody. So those are larger molecules, right? 
And typically, this protein and antibody drug, uh, I saw it from either a cell or either a mammalian cell or so so a mammalian cell or bacterial cell. Because of that, then they have some immunogenic response. So if you inject antibody drugs or protein drug, typically have some sort of immune response, right? So and now we're talking about cell therapy, which is on the other spectrum, which is much bigger than any of this molecule. So those cells typically give a, a bigger immune response, right? So uh, this is why uh, we like to use autologous cells. So if you use your own cell, then it doesn't have an immune response, right? So if you use a core blood, so core blood typically is your own core blood. So it's, it's autologous stem cell therapy. So hopefully it does give you the lowest immune response. Hmm. Okay. I didn't realize that, that mm-hmm. small molecules... Uh... Yeah. Much less yeah. Response large ones. Interesting. Yeah. Typically, hmm. the small molecule is. I mean, this is when maybe taking aspirin, taking vitamin D. So those are pretty small. And you take this typically you go to your liver, and your liver metabolizes this. So, and if you're taking, um, if you're taking antibody or protein drugs, so typically these drugs are using IV injection, right? So you cannot take it to to your gut because in your the acid in your gut will neutralize this antibody or protein right away. So antibody or protein drug typically are given using IV or subcute, right? So once they hit this inside the vessel, then you start seeing all these white blood cells looking at this and, well, this is a foreign molecule. We're going to attack them. So I just think that's fascinating that the stem cells, again, can take these small molecule drugs to very specific places because Mm-hmm. Again, this is just my theory, but there's a lot of redundancies in the body and a lot of redundant receptors and things like that. And it seems yeah. like the problem of a lot of small molecule drugs is that they act systemically. And if they acted locally in the area we wanted them yeah. to act, they would have much less side effects. So this seems to accomplish that. Yeah. So I think that's that's a problem for any of these drugs, right? So either there's a small molecule protein or biologic. So they have a very narrow therapeutic window. By a therapeutic window, I mean they it can be effective at a very small doses, right? So, um, but you have to take this at a pretty large doses orally, and it go to the circulation, and the systemic level is pretty pretty high at the end, right? So, and and that can cause side effects. So, any any way that we can reduce this systemic level becoming low, and in that put pretty beneficial for the drugs because now you could start working in a larger therapeutic window, making the the drug more effective, but doesn't cause side effects, right? So, well, Another thing I thought of is that if um, you're able to target a specific area, you could probably mm-hmm. use far less of a given small molecule drug because you don't have to account for diffusion around the body. So you that's can like, ex- use much, much lower doses and get a better effect. Yeah, that's exactly right. So... Uh, if you could kind of localize this 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 drug at the side of injury, then you now you don't need a lot of dosing, uh, systemic dosing, because you could localize it at at the side of injury, and you could concentrate most of this drug to be effective where it needed, so it doesn't cause any side effect well anywhere else in the body. Yeah, how much less? You might be able to use what like a thousand times less or ten thousand times less. <laughs> I mean, it seems amazing yeah. that. Uh, how much more effective this could be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the most, I guess, the 
take example is uh, anticoagulant drugs. So this drug is heparin or um, aspirin. So all these drugs can is very good in preventing clot. Right? So they they work very well in preventing blood clot. But at the same time, the highest circulating concentration of this drug, heparin drugs, can cause side effects. Right. So you can you can cause bleeding. Right. So could see a lot of lawsuits because of how this drug uh, works so good, but at the same time can cause bleeding, which is pretty dangerous. So if in if we could find a way to kind of localize this this therapeutic um, and this drug so that it can only target where it needed, then in a way you don't cause all these side effects. Yeah, this is like the Uber, using stem cells as Uber to get drugs. To yeah, that could be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. Is there a name for this field or specialty, or is it just uh, you know modifying well, stem cells for a purpose? Yes, I mean everybody has their own favorite name. That you will see there's there's uh, they they call it cell cell surface engineering or therapeutic cell surface engineering. There's stem cell engineering. So in a way, they like using engineering to modify the cell using different bioactives to put this conjugate into the cell surface. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, Donnie, this has been a great call. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more and to get in contact with your lab or you and ask questions? Yeah, I think it will be, and this has been been great discussion as well for me. Uh, I, you can reach out to me. I have a website online, so it's dhplab at andy.edu. So uh, you could reach out to check the website. Typically, I try to keep it updated. Uh, that website as well as my email address is dputra1 d-p-u-t-r-e-1 at andy.edu you could also follow me at twitter it's a dhp group well very good well donnie thank you for coming on the podcast i appreciate it all right thank you thank you you're listening to the future tech podcast with richard jacobs Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.